electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber, along with Leslie Picker and Mike Santoli. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl both have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to wrap up the trading week. You can see we are set up for a higher open. And our roadmap this morning, well, it starts with a word of caution from the Treasury Secretary. Why Janet Yellen says we'll see several more months of rapid inflation. Plus, a report Intel is in talks to buy chipmaker Global Foundries for $30 billion in what would be the company's largest acquisition. We've got the details. Plus, mask mandate. L.A. County requiring all individuals vaccinated or not to put their masks back on inside. We'll start off, though, with the markets themselves, of course. I'm glad to have uh, both of you along for the ride this morning. You know, Mike, I'd love to just start with you because I had a couple of conversations this morning with people who at least are still around to actually have conversations <laughs> with. Um, perhaps a bit more pain in the underlying market or than, than seemed to be the case sort of uh, at some of the big names that we look at or even the broader indexes, yes. uh, whether it's oil or health care. But... Some real pain is what I was hearing from, a, from at least a handful of market participants yeah. during the course of this week. I mean, all you have to do is really look at the Russell 2000 or look at even the, the S&P 500, but the equal weighted version, and it's been lagging. Um, so whether you want to call it a little bit of a stealth correction, very poor breath has been the rule, which is, you know, more stocks down than up on a given day. Uh, and essentially, the, the move toward caution or safety these days tends to be in me- mega cap growth stocks. It's not necessarily buy water utilities and, you know, uh, packaged food companies as much as it used to be. Now, the question is, is that just a phase or is that kind of the first stage of the the overall market kind of losing a bit of energy and it's going to eventually reach the indexes? So far, this market has resolved itself through kind of rotation and just kind of finding the next area of leadership to work. But it is an issue. And I do think active managers who don't own enough of the you know, the eight stocks that have been carrying, the, I mean, Apple up 2%, under-owned yeah. by institutions, not 2%, you know, on a given day this yes, week. Yes, no, it was, it I know. Up. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's tough sometimes. Interesting, because like Russell 2000, for example, down 4% just this week alone. Yeah. But we have heard this narrative of more of a risk on kind of growth trade forming, although today I guess is somewhat of an exception there. Yeah. Uh, so would you bifurcate kind of small cap stocks from risk on growth names. I mean, it, it seems it's, like there's a... Well, what's, what's interesting is it's there's profitable growth where the companies are reliable. We know that they earn billions and billions every quarter. Uh, that's the FANG and adjacent type companies. That, to me, is what's been working. Whereas if you look at the more speculative growth stuff that don't have profits yet, that's trading alongside the smaller stocks uh, and some of the, you know, kind of pure reflation trade. And so I think, you, you're, you know, it's funny. It always happens this way. 
uh, people who are skeptical of new highs say, oh, but it's not really supported by participation across the market. Breath is really lousy. And everyone else says, so what? The index is working. And then you get a couple percent downside in the index, and it's pre- been preceded by all these other stocks correcting for a while. Right. And the bulls say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of stuff to buy right now because stuff looks cheap even though the index is only down 1%. So in a bull market, it's been tough to fight the idea that it's going to kind of find its way higher eventually. Yeah, but on that on that note of things that are down, I mean, take a look at the OIH, that's yeah. the Van Eck Vectors Oil Services. Well, I don't need to tell, tell you. You know every ETF. Not at but, all. Uh, I mean, you know, that thing was almost 215 I mean, uh, not that many days ago. You can see what it's done. That's just, thank you. That's this, yeah. just a very recent period here. That's a month. If yeah. you look at five days, Mike, it's pretty painful. Um, and I could do the same for, for healthcare as well. You know, at least the one that's biotech heavy. I think it's the XBI. Yeah. That has also gotten hit pretty pretty strongly over the last week. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's definitely been a harvesting theme out there. When it came to energy, all it's been at a couple dollars downside, really, in, in crude. Uh, and the idea that we're worrying about global growth and demand maybe isn't going to be there. And you have this OPEC plus half deal out there. But there was so much hot money in those groups that basically said, you know, this is the big comeback. And I think that's what's being uh, being unwound. It's hard to know if it's kind of today's business when this stuff all gets re- reconciled. Uh, we've had some strong Fridays, I think we should keep in mind. And so I think that was also why we got a bit of a rally into the close. Here. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you how much of this is seasonal, just given the fact that it is summer. To David's point, you know, you're lucky if you can kind of get someone on the phone because everyone yeah. is doing their vacation things and not quite attention. The tendency has been strength in June and well into July, and, and it's it's really tough to handicap that because, you know, sellers go on vacation, too. <laughs> you know, it's not just like the people who That's would otherwise point. be buying stocks every day. Uh, but, no, there has sometimes been a tendency to lock in. Vacations you want to just lock things in uh, before you are going to be away. But right. it's, it's tough to trade the, the calendar. That way. Uh, we've also focused on the banks this week, of course, given we got earnings from more or less all the top banks uh, or the biggest market cap banks. Generally, not a great reception to those earnings. And as Mike's pointed out any number of times in our past shows, a lot of that group seems to trade off the yield. Take a look at the 10-year yield uh, because it did come down. Uh, traded below 1.3, I think. Uh, I think we're a bit above that now. This, of course, also kind of goes along with those comments that we got from uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen. She joined, uh, she joined Closing Bell yesterday and, of course, was asked about inflation. Here's what she had to say. I think we have we will have several more months of rapid inflation. So I'm not saying that this is a one month phenomenon, but I think over the medium term we'll see inflation decline back toward normal levels. But of course we have to keep a careful eye on it. Yes, and so did Powell say night and day they are watching inflation at the Fed, Leslie. Yeah, it was interesting because she did identify a few more months of this, which was a, a decent timeline. Um, you know, Powell saying he's, you know, looking at this and, and whether it would be a, a longer phenomenon, longer not quite sure what that means in terms of, of a policy shift. But, um, you know, it seems like those two are on the same page, which kind of contrasts what we heard earlier this week with BlackRock's Larry Fink, who believes that inflation could be more of a permanent feature of our economy, as well as, uh, you know, Yellen's predecessor in Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, right. who came on our air saying that, you know, maybe the Fed should be doing a little bit more to, to take control of this. And Mnuchin's predecessor, Larry Summers, way back, <laughs> who also has been ringing that bell. Um, what's interesting is it, it actually all, you put it together what Powell and Yellen said, and it really does 
buy the policymakers time. Because if you're defining transient as, look, hey, we're under-promising. We think this could be several more months of elevated inflation readings. And you have Powell saying, we're humble about our ability to forecast this stuff. We realize we've underestimated it. Maybe it'll be... It still kind of pushes out that date right. when you have to say, you said it would be down back toward 2% by this moment. And so I think preserving flexibility makes sense. Also, they're all looking at the same math, the same kind of year-over-year dynamics in terms of why we're up so much because of used cars and because of hotel prices and everything. So it should you know, moderate a little bit. And I think the market's mostly buying it. The two-year annual CPI, about 3%. Mm. Right. So if you go back to 2019 to here, including the 5.4 percent number we got most recently, it's around 3 percent. It's way higher than has been. But it sort of tells you that the distortions of the the covid months is is really pushing the current number, the one year number up a lot. And that's what has people along. Yeah. Um, Something else we haven't talked that often about, of course, is the corporate bond market. Um, but it is worthy of at least some focus because uh, yields or spread to, uh, to treasuries has tightened dramatically. Uh, the Journal today reporting on it as well. And all you need to do is look at it. Not quite at all-time lows, but getting pretty close. And certainly, as we've discussed, high yield, the average high yield is not even... The yield is below the inflation rate right now. Yesterday, Jeffrey Gunlock was, uh, was a guest on, uh, on Halftime. Uh, of course, he is the uh, so-called bond king. But he does love to talk stocks, doesn't he? Take a listen. <laughs> the biggest case for stocks is that they're cheap to bonds. They still are cheap to bonds because the bond yield is so ridiculously low. And you also have the Fed doing their quantitative easing. And it still remains the case that there is almost a constant, so it's almost like a law of physics, that if you take the Fed's balance sheet and divide it by the uh, market cap of the S&P 500, it seems to be a constant. And this is true going back like 10 years. So the Fed continues with their uh, bond buying. I have to say, Mike, I've never taken the Fed's balance sheet and divided it by the market cap of the S&P. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you do it every day. It's really not worth your time to do it, to be honest with you, because it, it actually... You know, I, I think it's a very convenient way to saying somehow what the stock market is doing is fake or somehow what the Fed is doing is irresponsible. Um, the balance sheet did absolutely nothing, went flat when they stopped QE 2014 or so uh, through 2018. stock market was up plenty during that time, those four years, when the balance sheet did nothing. So it's not a law of physics. It's a coincident kind of indicator. Um, but if you want to make the case that stocks look attractive because yields are so low and because corporate borrowing rates are so low and because, therefore, you know, earnings power is higher and you have the ability to pay more today for, you know, because the discount rate's lower, that's different. I think that makes sense as opposed to saying uh, there's all this money sitting in electronic form at the Fed and it's created reserves in the banking system, which is what the balance sheet means, uh, and say that somehow that is, 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 is driving up stock prices or justifies where the market is. is I, saw, I saw an amazing tweet this week about how a 40-60 mix of, of stocks and used cars <laughs> remains an undefeated portfolio mixture. And I just thought that was so like quintessential of what we're seeing <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. So for pension funds out there, it's that uh, stocks and used cars. Forget bonds altogether. Storage costs might get there you. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, a little bit of the time left we have for this block, which we don't need much more. I did want to get to some corporate news this morning. It is uh, reported by the Wall Street Journal. It involves Intel, of course, a company that we have followed quite closely. 
as it tries to dramatically increase its ability to produce chips as well, um, or at least catch up to some of its competitors. The story, though, uh, you probably are familiar with it, uh, came out late yesterday that they're in talks to buy Global Foundries. The price tag said to be as much as $30 billion. Now, Global Foundries is owned by, by uh, Mubadala. Uh, that's an investment arm of the Abu Dhabi government. It is based in the U.S. Um, Leslie, I always usually have something to share with people, some insight, some sense as to the likelihood of the transaction. I got nothing, uh, unfortunately, here. I'm not picking much of anything up from the typical group of people, at least, that I would go to who have obviously advised Intel uh, in the past. Um, Pat Gelsinger did a lot of acquisitions at, at VMware. We know that. Uh, Tuck-ins and larger ones. Uh, certainly, it's not hard to imagine they would be considering something like that. The only pause I would sort of give it is, well, A, I have no reporting on it. doesn't mean much. But B, um, you do wonder about any trust. Not here, where our companies are being encouraged, obviously, increase their domestic capacity, although Global Foundries, obviously, is not based here, or, or a lot of their foundries are not based the here. Actual facility. And then the question becomes China and China antitrust, because that would obviously be a key here. And it gets back to the heightening tensions between our two countries in so many ways. We all People have seen, I'm sure, the latest uh, from Biden on Hong Kong and the advisory to U.S. corporations. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see if we get any more information. Yeah. As a former deal reporter, you're a current deal reporter. Not really. Uh, just, no. you, you are. Uh, just here and there. Reading, you know, parsing through the language of the article, it does appear that this is in somewhat early stages. They say that any talks uh, don't appear to include global foundries executives. So that would say that, you know, they may not have actually come to the negotiating table talking about pricing, talking about things like antitrust at this point in time. So it's definitely going to be one to watch. Yeah. Global Foundries, by the way, is uh, it does have its corporate headquarters yeah. here uh, in the United States. Uh, but again, AMD, a big customer, that could be problematic. Yeah, when, 1.6 trillion. Yeah. But Intel's ambitions, though, yes. to be a third-party, you know, manufacturer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's a trial Third point, Dan Loeb in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they were obviously quite happy about the appointment of Mr. Gelsinger. Some, well, early this year is when that happened. Yeah. Leslie. Lots going on there. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, coming up, cruise stocks getting a lift today from news north of the border, but they remain among this month's worst performers. We'll look at what's ahead for cruise lines as the Delta variant spreads and vaccinations slow down. Uh, taking a look at futures as well at this point in time. Still green across the screen. Dow up about 61 points or implied to be open about 60 points at this point in time. More Squawk on the Street from the New York Stock Exchange straight ahead. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. 
You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. A COVID-19 setback in Southern California as the Delta variant continues to spread. Beginning Saturday night at 11.59 p.m., residents of Los Angeles County will again be required to wear masks indoors in public spaces, regardless of their vaccination status. The county's medical examiner calling the decision an all-hands-on-deck moment. David. Well, uh, Leslie, Canada is set to allow cruise ships to resume operations as of November 1st. That is if they fully comply with public health requirements. That news did send uh, shares of Carnival, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian higher in the pre-market. However, they are still down double digits so far this month. Wedbush Securities' James Hardiman and Truist Securities' Patrick Scholes join us now to talk about the industry. Gentlemen, thanks to you both for being here. James, I'll start with you. Uh, as I pointed out, the stocks obviously have been down. Um, do they play off of these, I don't even want to call them setbacks, but, uh, you know, various things we're hearing about the, about the Delta variant in particular, or, or, or are they more set to sort of run their course regardless? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of the above. I mean, these are, these are uh, put it mildly, volatile stocks in, in the current environment. The news with respect to Canada, Canada isn't a particularly large uh, source of customers or even a destination market for the cruise industry. The bigger deal with Canada is that cruise ships coming from the U.S. would typically go through Canadian waters to get to Alaska, uh, which is a significant market. Uh, that said, um, there was recently legislation that passed Congress and, and was signed by President Biden that allowed them to, you know, bypass Canada effectively. But, you know, big picture, every step in the direction of normality is good news for the cruise industry. And we saw that with, with the news out of Canada. Conversely, um, obviously, any news that, that suggests that, that the Delta variant is, is getting worse um, is, is seen as a negative uh, for the cruise industry and tends to send these stocks down. Yeah. Uh, well, Patrick, on that uh, question, are we back to normality and or when can we forecast sort of what would be considered normality? Well, the big question is, you know, what what is normality? And, you know, I'm reminded of the of a musical quote that, you know, when life looks like easy street, there's danger at your door. And, um, you know, it may not be till 2023 or or late perhaps next year that we're uh, hopefully back to normality. So, I mean, it, it's definitely too early to say you know, that things are normal right now. And I, you know, there's still a tremendous amount of risk here in this uh uh, investment in cruise lines, you know, I'm, I'm always constantly reminded that, you know, it just takes one large outbreak and then keep mind, there's, you know, well over 100, you know, 100, 200 ships out there, you know, one large outbreak could send this industry back to where it was, you know, a year ago. So it's, uh, you know, certainly not without its risks. James, what does that mean for bookings right now? And how aggressive are cruises able to be in terms of pricing, given just some of the uncertainty that's out there in the long term? Sure. So, I mean, what we've seen so far, and it continues to be somewhat of a surprise uh, to the industry observers, is that demand seems to be pretty strong, particularly here in, in the United States. Um, and as I think about 
the Delta variant. Um, I think from a consumer perspective and their willingness to participate in certain travel and leisure activities, I really don't think the Delta variant is going to make a, a huge difference. Uh, again, at least not here in the U.S. I think people that are vaccinated are, are gradually getting back to normal. Uh, and the people that aren't vaccinated, I think, were, were less likely to, to let this affect what they want to do in the first place. Where I think it may make a significant difference is from a regulatory perspective, uh, particularly as you look to Europe, as you look to Asia, um, which still haven't um, entirely reopened um, uh, to, to, to cruise travel. And, and so the more that you see those cases tick up, uh, the more concern there is that even a uh, you know, early 2022, um, you know, ramp to, to you know, 100% capacity, which is what, what some of these cruise lines have talked about, uh, even that could be in jeopardy in, in those parts of the world. Patrick, just financially, uh, what is the operating environment going to look like for these guys now? Not, even assuming demand comes back to somewhere uh, toward pre-COVID levels, meaning they've raised a lot of debt, uh, they have a lot of a similar kind of labor cost and, you know, worker retention and, and location type issues others might have. You have oil prices higher. So uh, what can we expect in terms of profitability down the road, even if we're talking about a 2023, you know, quote, normal year? Well, cer- certainly profitability, profitability on the EPS line is going to be hampered for quite a few years because these companies took on billions and billions of debt and also raise significant amount of, uh, of equity. Certainly, uh, of course, raises your share count. Um, you know, the good news, and I, I, I'm always constantly sort of tweaking and running the models and the numbers here. You know, in, in a normalized 2023, assuming we get there and everything's okay, you know, these companies have the opportunity to really pay down a lot of debt, so that could tweak their earnings higher. But, you know, we're still, we're still here. We're still dealing with Delta variants. Um, certainly, only a small percentage of the ships are, are sailing at this point. So a lot, you know, a lot needs to happen in the right way between now and 2023. But again, you know, if we get to 2023, you, you know, you could see tweaks to earnings higher just from paying down uh, debt from their very large cash balances at this point. So, but yeah. it remains yeah. to be seen. Guys, uh, appreciate it. Thanks to you both. Great weekend. Thank you, Thanks, guys. All right, still to come, shares of Didi continue to slump as China ramps up its cybersecurity probe of the ride-hailing giant. We'll bring you the latest. More Squawk on the Street when we return. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The opening bell is just minutes away. You can see all three major indexes in the green this morning after retail sales uh, showed a surprise increase uh, during the month of June. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Shares of DD, well, you can see they are set to open perhaps uh, below 12 yet again. Uh, this due to uh, uh, the China-based ride-hailing company being the subject, of course, of the, what is now called an on-site cybersecurity review from at least seven departments of Chinese regulators. Uh, 
the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, the Cyberspace Administration of China, the Ministry of Transport, and Ministry of Natural Resources, all, Leslie, amongst those that will be stationed at DD's headquarters going through things to try to determine the national, or I should say, cybersecurity risk that the, the company poses. All this, of course, only weeks after DD went public, a $4.4 billion IPO, one of the largest we've seen here at the New York Stock Exchange from a Chinese company, really since Alibaba. Uh, went up a bit and then went down a lot. A lot. And now it's about $2 below its $14 IPO price, 14% declines for those people who bought in at the IPO price. Uh, but to your point, it does feel like the crescendo of this just regulatory intervention in this company uh, that's only been public for Obviously, in Chinese stocks that trade here, are trying to understand a roadmap for what the regulators expect and want, and hope, perhaps, Mike, that that will sort of uh, be something you can work with. But right. it's very much unclear that would be the case. Totally unclear. The signals are very strong. They don't really want kind of global capital being raised and all that sort of thing. Uh, stocks have taken a hit, so people aren't waiting around to see the details. No. All right, there you hear it. It's cheering. So nice to have you back in the building. The opening bell. Of course, you can also take a look at the real time exchange back at uh, our headquarters. Here at the big board celebrating its IPO as a digital lending platform, Lend Labs. Over at the NASDAQ, oncology company, Araska. It's also celebrating its IPO. Nice to have you here, Leslie, since you cover IPOs along with some of the other things. It's been an active market. I mean, we. We've had plenty of SPACs this week as well, either announcing deals or de spacking but we don't want to forget, straight IPOs have also been quite strong. Yeah, and we did have a huge backlog coming off the of what kind of, on a comp basis to what we saw during the first half of the year last year versus this year. Our data team just sent out a statistic yesterday about how I think we saw something like 200% higher in terms of the number of IPOs. Of course, the market was basically shut during the pandemic came back with a vengeance during the second half of the year and into the beginning of this year. The question is, kind of how sustainable is that? Uh, we are expected to see a lot more sponsored back companies in the second half of the year. Those tend to be a bit more indebted. How much the market will receive those relative to some of the more growth-oriented companies we've seen. Or, you know, Right. That's it, a great a point. Question. So much of what we've seen is growth-oriented. Certainly that many of them coming from SPACs, whether it's the announcement of a deal or the de-SPAC, and even the ones that have been recently listing or are going public as well, whereas typically if you're a sponsor, as we call them, a leveraged buyout that is then going back to the public market so that the private equity firm can monetize, to a certain extent, their holdings, they tend to be highly leveraged, a lot of debt, and therefore it's not clear. It's a different response sometimes from the investor base in terms of a debt reduction as opposed to a growth capital story. Exactly. And of course, the you know the one example of... of major growth IPO that we're expecting is Robinhood. Uh, that is kind of the quintessential growth company that we might be expecting. That should come later this month based on uh, you know the timeline for the S1. If they do, in fact, get through all their necessary approvals as quickly as possible, it could come before the end of July. Uh, so that's one to keep Robinhood will be a big one. I got one to put on your radar as well for the fall. Rivian. Uh, and that's going to be a very interesting one, of course, the maker of EVs, 
a lot of potential demand, Amazon, Ford amongst their large investors. And I mean, the last numbers I heard from people who are invested is 55 billion in yeah. terms of where they are right now. So, and perhaps as soon as October, that's still being discussed, but Rivian could be obviously an IPO before the end of the year, certainly. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting company. They have a partnership with Amazon uh, to help create, you know, lower Amazon's carbon footprint through these kind of electric vehicle uh, distribution trucks. And, and so that kind of separates them from your traditional EV that we've seen in the market. And it's one that I know a lot of investors are focused on. I think there were some reports out there that their valuation at one point in time could be $70 billion for an IPO. I'm guessing that's come down a bit. Just we'll see. I don't know. Mike, I saw that old pickup. I don't know if you want to trade it in for a Rivian yeah. at some point. <laughs> when, you know. No, uh, because they're not making any more 87 GMC uh, short <laughs> So I think the scarcity value is is going to remain, I think, very receptive, but it is kind of addicted to the big growth story. The SPAC, uh, the, the SPAC mode of here's where we're going to be in five years seems to be very, uh, very resonant. So what's interesting, too, about the Didi story is imagine if they did a direct listing and they didn't even have the money. I mean, at least they got the money from an It's a difference, you know, of uh, where you're foregoing if you just do a direct listing. That's actually a really good point because they did still walk away to David's point yeah. with $4.4 billion, right. uh, which by any stretch of the term is a successful yeah. IPO uh, for a company, especially if they face, you know, certain regulatory issues and, and yeah. you know, uh, what that uh, means for their business. Clients, of course, of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan, which were the lead underwriters for the IPO, may not be particularly happy unless they flip day one and then they're fine, but those who held more than, I guess, a couple of days uh, have have are significantly uh, down. Yeah, especially as the journal reports that the government actually recommended that Didi delay its IPO before the IPO happened. And so that kind of begs the question, if you're a client of some of these firms, did the underwriters know? If they did know, why didn't they share that? If they didn't know, what's going on with their due diligence? So it's, it's just a, a huge mess all around. Uh, Mike, we uh, we open up almost half a percent on the Nasdaq comp, and Apple, yeah. to the point that you made uh, towards the top of the show, has had quite a week actually, and quite a couple of weeks yeah. in, uh, in terms of its performance. It's uh, up, yeah, three percent for the week. Um, it, it is basically bumped toward new highs, two and a half trillion market cap. So it's it's kind of knocking down all these landmarks, um, and I think it's mostly because of the category of, of of stock it is. Amazon had a similar breakout after ten months. We've been we've been pointing to that. Um, and you know, did, did have a pullback yesterday. Interestingly, yeah. the bond yield story, the relationship there, doesn't necessarily hold true uh, day to day. But we have pretty calm uh, waters on the on the yield front today. Very good retail sales report this morning. We should mention at 8:30. Uh, did seem to firm up the futures in general. Markets definitely receptive to wanting to make sure there's some there's some energy in the you know in the consumer spending side of things, and we're not really in a soft patch because you know the real time estimate, the Atlanta Fed estimate of uh, GDP for this quarter is down two percent points in a month. It's still 7.9% or something like that. And of course, it isn't always right, but it shows you people have been leaning in the direction of wondering if people are losing their spending, um, you know, uh, sort of interest right now in terms of uh, spending down their uh, their savings. So yeah, it looks like it's uh, it's still a little bit of a, uh, of a NASDAQ day uh, with the uh, Treasury yields not responding too much to that um, uh, to that retail sales report, but you do have 133 above last week's low uh, is uh, is definitely, I think, comfortable that we're not making new lows in the yield, if nothing else. I was going to mention, too, leading stock today. It's not yet in the S&P, but Moderna, uh, 
you know, is, is up. It's getting a bump because it is going to join the S&P 500 next week. I, I just think it makes sense. It's up 6% right now. Um, really, really be cautious about thinking that that's going to matter on a forward-going basis for the stock. The stock's already up a couple thousand percent. It's above $100 billion. Uh, Tesla last year went in at just December 18th, ran massively hit its into the number right before. after the split. Right. Uh, after well, the but before the before the what did it I thought it ran before the addition to the S&P. It did. It right. got all the yeah. game. But even after the addition, because the market went right. so nuts in January, it made a hot. But it's trading today below where yeah. it went in right. to the S&P. So just being in the index and getting all the index fund flows does not mean anything for uh, for where the stock heads. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to mention that it reminds me of Tesla when you just the thought of Tesla being included in yeah. the index led to a bump in the stock. But that's, that's now, Tesla was a, certainly a bigger market cap. It was a much more kind of, you know, is it going to be, is it not going to be admitted because it had the, the profitability was sort of touch and go. Uh, and so, and of course, there's a cult behind Tesla, a little more so, I think, than we do. Yeah, but to your point, big tech really leading the way in the S&P this morning, Microsoft, Intel, Apple, Cisco, Salesforce, uh, the, the big outperformers this morning. And, uh, you know, it begs the question, too, this idea idea of additional consolidation uh, in the chip world, as we were talking about earlier with Intel. Uh, you've got just this kind of uncertainty that's out there right now with regard to the Delta variant, um, with regard to what's going, ha- going to happen in terms of the Fed and various taper measures and potential rate increases and when that's going to happen. And so what do people do? They flock toward big tech. They do. They Seem do. As, you know, you, you talk about uncertainty as well, Leslie, and obviously you mentioned the Wall Street Journal's report that Intel's in talks with uh, Global Foundry's owner, Udala, to uh, potentially buy Global Foundry's a big chip maker. But again, uncertainty there is on, on any trust. And uh, frankly, actually, even during the course of the show and being able to text with some experts on that front, there is some question. If it went to the FTC, assuming the deal actually is real and the talks actually get to a point where they try and, 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 and reach a deal, uh, the FTC would likely get it. And we know where this FTC is on deal making. Uh, not tech. not overly predisposed, even with the idea being that it would be beneficial from a national security standpoint because it would mean more chip ownership under an umbrella of a, of a big domestic uh, U.S. manufacturer. Um, you know, what I'm being told is that would still require, to a certain extent, sort of the DOD or the NSC to actually step in under the Defense Production Act and do some things. So, again, just something else to add into the mix to these. Uh, reports of talks between um, uh, Global Foundries and uh, and Intel. Uh, antitrust, both here and China, could be gating issues. Is there any sense that that kind of consolidation could help with some of the supply chain issues we've seen with regard to chips in particular and maybe some, you know, vertical integration? I mean, it would, uh, yeah, I mean, it would, it potentially would be beneficial to Intel, particularly as it is trying to leapfrog yet again in terms of, because it has a huge gap in its chip making in terms of where things are right now, and it kind of missed that. Um, but as for overall supply, that's, that's still, you know, that's that's sort of in process. Yeah. Global Foundries and TSMC have spoken at least positively very recently about starting to be able to meet some of this demand that we, of course, have seen uh, from the automakers that has not been met that has resulted in uh, far fewer sales of new new uh, new automobiles. It is interesting, though, that even on the, you know, on the reports, the market bids up Intel by a percent, not necessarily spooked by the idea that they may spend some somewhere around. 
30 billion dollars. Now, look, Intel spends 16 billion a year in capex. I mean, they're just a massive, massive uh, kind of sponsor of just you know creating the hardware that drives the world. Um, so it's not as if they're not used to spending a lot of money. And maybe this would be a way of more efficiently you know capturing that productive capacity and opening up to, to new clients and new end markets. But it is interesting if it was a market test to say how would we take it. Uh, now the chips are bouncing anyway, but it's interesting. Yeah. No, to your point, that's always a, a nice signal to the potential negotiators in any deal if the acquirer stock price goes up, uh, especially when you're looking at a price tag of $30 billion, which would be, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Intel's biggest acquisition ever. Uh, and so, you know, kind of a, a big game changer for yeah. that company and just its overall portfolio. Stock moving up a bit more. Did want to take a look at shares of uh, Lordstown Motors. Not really down much. Uh, this on news uh, from a filing that uh, the DOJ is taking a look at the company. Um, you know, the SEC is already in there. Always important to point out the SEC, civil, the DOJ, criminal. Uh, this obviously goes back to some of the things that the company said in terms of pre-orders for its truck and what it said and how it said it and whether, in fact, they were misleading or perhaps even outright lies. Um, Lordstown has had some difficulties, to say the least. Yeah. One of the main ones is uh, they need to raise a lot more capital to actually even try to make good on some of the promises that are out there in terms of production. And they've said as much that they are, they remain dramatically undercapitalized based on what their business plans have. Um, and, and to your point, a lot of the issues surrounded this idea of whether or not their orders are binding. Uh, you know, you look at their presentation and, and they you know, mention that they have these orders without going into much detail about how that revenue recognition is playing out into some of their projections. And of course, with the SPAC, you're able to share financial projections in a way that you wouldn't normally see with, uh, you know, a traditional IPO. It's the documents are, are able to have some disclosure, much yeah. more like a, a merger. Right. Uh, but yeah, we always, important to point out, it did go public via SPAC. Earlier this week, by the way, we did see some very strong comments from SEC Chair Gensler uh, when the SEC took action against another SPAC. This one actually having to do with, it's called space, generally speaking, but some misrepresentations that may have been made there as well. All right, let's get back to the broader markets and check in with Bob Pisani. Bob. Hello there, David. Another strong start here. Um, we started stronger. All 11 sectors were on the upside, a little mixed five minutes in, but tech was leading early on, industrials, materials. Uh, energy just turned negative. Remember, energy's the big laggard this month, uh, that sector down about 6%. We're in the middle of earnings season, not a lot of big uh, companies today. I just want to note Charles Schwab did come in. Uh, they were basically in line, maybe a penny shy of estimates, a little bit unusual. But the key thing here, boy, they just keep raking in new accounts, 1.7 million. They have almost $4 trillion in assets under management uh, now. Uh, daily trading volume down 28%. Remember that big run up on the meme stock trading in January, February, March? They're down volume down 28 percent uh, in the second quarter compared to the first quarter. Uh, take a look at Char uh, Schwab here. Remember, they topped out. Remember, Schwab is largely a bank. When rates started moving up, they moved up, topped out around February uh, or so on, on the rates and all on the meme trading. So not a lot of surprise. Schwab's been a bit sideways since then. A lot of anxiety out there. We've been talking about it. David was talking about it. Mike was talking about it a little earlier about the markets because you've got dueling narratives the, to explain why the yields are low. The first and obvious explanation is what Janet Yellen said yesterday. The market is saying inflation is transitory. The other narrative is sort of the pretzel logic narrative. Inflation is not transitory, folks. And what the yields, low yields are saying is that the Fed is going to have to taper 
uh, and sooner rather than later, they're going to have to raise rates sooner rather than later. And the market's reflecting the economic downturn down the road because we know the one thing that kills bull markets is the Fed raising rates. You might think, how could these two ideas even exist in the same debate? But actually, they do. Part of the problem is there is a lot of anxiety out there because of the valuations in the market right now. They're very high. High valuations leave stocks vulnerable to a downturn. We know one thing for sure. We are likely at peak earnings growth. We've talked about this for a couple months. Peak earnings growth doesn't mean earnings are going to stop growing. It means the rate of change of earnings are going to stop accelerating. So that implies a lower multiple. That causes a little bit of anxiety as well with prices this high. So instead of 22 times forward earnings a few months ago, we're looking at 20 times forward earnings on the S&P 500 and maybe lower a bit as time goes on. You can't put a higher multiple after peak earnings growth. That's the source of a lot of the anxiety that's in the stock market. The other is these high valuations. If you look at the tech leaders, they are trading at multiples that are historically high. I'm talking about the big names, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. You see these multiples? All of them are much higher than they were two years ago. I don't want to use last year. I'm going back to 2019 when most of these were in the low 20s and and, uh, low 30s. So these are much, much higher here. And even with companies that continue to grow their earnings, these are toppy multiples when you're talking about uh, the peak earnings situation. If you were looking for the anxiety, yes, there's a little anxiety. The advanced decline line is not quite as strong as it used to be. But really, you're, you're, you're stretching to think that there is some kind of big decision on what's going on with the market. So far this month, you see the S&P's outperforming the equal weight S&P. Most of the time this year, the equal weight is outperformed. So a little bit of reversal. The Russell 2000 is the weak story here. And a lot of people keep saying this is some kind of bellwether. I quite uh, do not understand this argument, folks. Look at the Russell 2000. It has been sideways since February. It moved up in the big run up earlier in the year and essentially has not been much of a market leader ever since then. David, the key to understanding this whole thing is that there's a lot more than an economic debate about the Fed's role in stimulating the economy and creating inflation. There is people who have been at war with the Fed and with the government since Roosevelt took us off the gold standard in 1933. These are the people who argue inflation is going to get out of control and they're having a moment for the first time in 50 years. David, back to you. All right, we'll grant them their moment. Uh, Bob, thank you. Bob Bassani. As we head to break, let's uh, take another look at how Treasuries have been faring this morning in our bond report. Of course, we did get uh, the release of what was a better better than expected retail sales report. And that has had the effect of sending yields up a bit on the 10-year. You can see 132, the 30-year bond now yielding just below 2% at 1.95 even. We'll be right back. Apple employees say the tech giant is cracking down on remote work. That according to The Verge, which says workers at the iPhone maker state it's harder than ever to get remote work requests approved. This after Apple rolled out a new hybrid model that will require people to return to the office three days a week starting in early September. Some employees say they will quit if Apple doesn't change its stance. So, uh, out of the bottle. Yeah, so. it is. It's one of the most important stories in business, I keep saying, and I really believe that because it is a potential, a seminal change in the way people work. But there are also are so many companies and the people who lead them grappling with exactly how to approach this. They certainly are hearing from their workforces that there is a desire to work in a hybrid at the very least or certainly have remote as a serious possibility oftentimes. 
and yet there's resistance in certain places. We've talked about it in financial services a great deal to having it happen much at all. But in tech, you've got a wide disparity. You know, Apple's saying we'd love to have you back two or three days a week, but other big tech companies, and perhaps it's a selling point for them to attract new talent, saying you can work remote as much as you want. It's unclear. Obviously, we all have our own biases, and I think we all kind of feel maybe perhaps we're better off together. But, uh, you know, the, the younger generation in particular, so to speak, seems very much comfortable with the idea of remote. And then certain jobs lend themselves to it. We know that as well. I mean, Apple also, of course, just built a massive new headquarters. Um, you know, a lot of fanfare around that, a lot of investment in that. And obviously also it's a statement of kind of principle about what they think works in the culture. And they thought a lot about it. And they think there's magic that happens, whether it's true or not, for every job. Well, you know, creativity is, is, a, is a key thing, and yeah. it, you're going to see uh, both sides here. People say there's no data. I don't know what data there would be that there's a lack of innovation when you're home right. versus when you're in the office. But but this idea of a great resignation, with so many surveys saying like a quarter of the workforce is looking to switch jobs, you know, once things kind of stabilize with the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge deal it's for huge. these companies. And uh, I think we can all expect, as you said, Leslie, hybrids here to stay. The question is, how do you measure whether it's better or worse than what it's replacing? All right, up next, something many billionaires don't want to hear this summer. From top flight restaurants to yacht clubs, summer demand is so strong that even billionaires are being shot at or put on waiting lists. Uh, Robert Frank, what's going on here? Good morning, Leslie. With over $10 trillion in added wealth over the past year, the wealthy have turned the summer of 2020 into an arms race of excess. At Centro Restaurant in the Hamptons, a plate of lobster fra diavolo pasta is now selling for $85. And that's only if you're lucky enough to get in. Waiting lists at many restaurants now stretching for weeks. And customers are offering cash and plane tickets just to get tables. And it's not just the Hamptons. Conspicuous consumption is being redefined in many of the most elite resorts towns. If you look at Aspen, the favorite watering hole of the wealthy there called Cash Cash, they are now booked through August. And forget about hosting a party at home or dinner. Aspen's caterer to the stars, Elizabeth Slosberg, is now booked all summer and early fall. And she's now turning down billionaire clients. Her new pitch is offering winter weddings. Now, normally... The wealthy could just hit the water, but a yacht shortage, now there's a high-class problem. This yacht shortage means it's almost impossible to find boats over 80 feet long to charter, especially along the Atlantic coast. Customers now paying over $125,000 for a single week aboard a mid-level yacht. Now, dock space, of course, from Nantucket to Maine to New Jersey, also full. Prices at some marinas there up 20 to 30%. And David, that's not even to mention real estate. You talk about Aspen, average home price there, $11 million now. We're seeing rentals in the Hamptons, rentals, $2 million just for the summer. Oh my God. That yacht shortage alone is going to keep me up all weekend, Robert. I had no idea. Thank you. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. 
Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart Pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart.